Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. Today I'm delighted to welcome Gretchen Diebenkorn-Grant, who is the daughter of artist Richard Diebenkorn. This lecture is in celebration of the wonderful exhibition of Richard Diebenkorn's work upstairs, and it is a real privilege to have a family member discuss such a great artist. Today, Gretchen will be speaking about the life and art of her father, giving an insight into his personality, career, and the environment in which he produced his exceptional body of work. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Gretchen Diebenkorn-Grant. Thank you. I also have a few other thank yous before I begin. Um, Christopher Lebrun, the president of the Royal Academy, Charles Smith, the secretary of the Academy, and the other officers of the Academy. Thank you very much. This show is beautiful here. This first photograph is uh, was taken by Leo Holub in 1986. And it is the way I like to remember my father. This is a family favorite. My mother had it up in her house uh, always. And uh, we, we do, that's, that's what he looked like, what he felt like to me. My father, who could be very articulate, was hesitant to speak extemporaneously about art, his own or the work of others. I think he felt in some way trapped by the formality and the permanence of his words. I know what he means. There is something so final about words, and in a very real way they are often inadequate to express something visually complex. I'm often asked what it was like to live with a creative man, I mean in this case a particular creative man, my father Richard Diebenkorn who was not only an artist, but also my greatly loved father. What I'm going to talk about today is very personal and therefore not necessarily valid in an art history context. So on the understanding that I am speaking to you today as a daughter, an admiring daughter at that, and not as a historian, I will share some of my thoughts about my father with you. For me, all of his work is connected, all part of a continuum of the way this particular person observed and reacted to the world around him. Now, I should give you some facts to help give a context to what I'm about to say. He was born in 1922 in Portland, Oregon, where my grandparents had relocated temporarily from San Francisco. They moved back to San Francisco when he was a young child and he attended public schools there in San Francisco. He attended Stanford University where to my grandparents' disappointment he studied art instead of law or medicine. He met my mother at Stanford and they married in 1943. And then he went into the Marine Corps during World War II. I was born in 1945 and my brother in 1947. Now along the way of their life, our life, we lived in Albuquerque where he went to, to get his masters, Urbana, Illinois at the University of Illinois where he uh, took his only offer for a teaching job after he got his masters which was to teach drawing to architecture students. 
Um, then to Berkeley, where he went back to the Art Institute, where he had been a student and also a teacher for a brief time. And he also taught in, when we lived in that area at Mills College and the California College of Arts and Crafts, and even at a prison at one point in Vacaville. Um, and then in uh, 1966, they moved to Southern California, where he accepted a teaching job at UCLA, uh, where he taught for a few years and, and then uh, remained there until 1988. And my parents moved to Northern California, back to California, Northern California again, uh, to uh, Healdsburg, California, which is about an hour and a half north of San Francisco in the Sonoma Valley. And he died in 1993 at only 70. He always spent time intensely looking and drawing. This is a drawing he did at age 16, 1938, um, influenced, to be sure, by all the books and the movies that he went to constantly. He was an only child, and initially, I think it was a way for people to keep him busy, the drawing. He was given his father's shirt cardboards to use for his drawings. And in addition, his grandmother painted quite lovely landscape paintings, and she was interested in taking him to art exhibitions. She took him to see the first Van Gogh show in San Francisco when he was young. Apparently, it was considered laughable and was very sparsely attended. My father is known for his sensitivity to the light and color of a particular place. I think it's no accident that many of his abstract pictures and even some of his representational ones are uh, titled with the name of the place where they were painted. All these places have a very different look and a different quality of life. So the first picture I'm going to show you, um, this is Palo Alto Circle, which was done when he was a student at Stanford in 1943. Um, you can see the bright heat in that one of, of Palo Alto. And then we move to Sausalito, another very bright place with the bay in front reflecting onto the lovely quality of light there. The next picture is also from Sausalito. And then we moved to Albuquerque to, for him to get his master's. And uh, we were around, we were living, when we first moved there, um, in a uh, hired hands house out in the country in the middle of a cow field. I guess you don't say cow field, cattle field, whatever it was. But anyway, there were lots of cows and pigs and horses and all that sort of thing roaming around. And that one, that picture there was in his master's show. And the next picture was, uh, this is a work on paper done during that same time. We then uh, moved to Urbana for that one nine month period. My parents were not very happy in Urbana. In the middle of the country, they missed the, the water or the open sky, which they loved in New Mexico, which took the place of water for them. But um, Urbana somehow didn't do that. But this is the Archer, one of my favorite pictures, um, at, done in uh, 1953. And the next picture is Urbana number six, done also in 1953. After the academic year in Urbana, we moved 
back to the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, lived in Berkeley. And uh, this first picture is Berkeley number 52. This is the picture that is in the White House dining room, the private dining room of, of Mr. Obama, President Obama. The next one is Seawall, um, which was painted in 57. That first picture was 55. This is 57, and you can see we are getting closer to a more um, landscape feel, uh, even though it is not literal landscape. You can see the ocean here coming up to the cliffs across there and the green, open green fields, which I can guarantee you will not be open any longer, um, but they were then. And that beautiful blue sky that we do get in California sometimes. The next picture uh, is a gouache from this same period. He had uh, quite an interest in how the landscape was uh, cut by roads and uh, how people and cars and things moved through the landscape. So here is, that's another one from that same period, which is a gouache. And then finally, uh, where he moved a little, quite close to uh, pure figure in the painting Coffee from uh, 1959. In 1966, they moved to uh, Ocean Park and uh, when he was first there, the figurative work bled into his um, sort of new structural concepts that he was working on. I feel that with all his work, if, if you look at the transitions between all these periods, you see bunches of things from the previous period and then you see things coming up. And the, for example, in the seawall where it is slightly beginning to, to be um, representational, you also see some of the um, much more abstracted landscape. And here we have this uh, model who also um, is a precursor to the Ocean Park pictures, the large works that were influenced by that, uh, by that particular place. Um, this next work is Ocean Park number 27, which was done in 70, so the 1970. So this is pretty, pretty early in the process of the, of the Ocean Parks. Um, this next one is an invented head from, from that period. So again, we're kind of toying with both things. Uh, what is figure and what is landscape and what is um, environment of any sort. Uh, this next is a lovely little collage, which you can see in the show here, which was done in, in 1975. This is a work on paper and pasted paper. So there is an enormous amount of stuff glued onto this picture. It has a lot of texture to it. Um, next picture is Ocean Park um, 122 from 1980. And this is very pure, very uh, much a, a typical Ocean Park picture in both its feeling and its light and its um, quadrants feels very typical to me. The next picture is uh, a gouache in, in the middle of the Ocean Park pictures, which I'll talk about later. He went and did um, a large number of pictures of clubs and spades 
that were both Ocean Park pictures and they were also definitely clubs and spades. And they're, the family is particularly fond of these. They are not as well known as any of his other work. I think they're hard for a lot of people to understand, but we all like them a lot. And then they did move to Healdsburg and uh, we have some untitled works on paper. He did know paintings in Healdsburg. At this point, um, shortly after he got there and he got his studio put together, um, he became ill. And so working in, in a uh, heavy medium, the, the Ocean Park paintings were uh, enormous and very hard to carry around. So he really didn't do any during that time. We have a couple of stretched canvases waiting to be painted and we have a couple of unfinished ocean parks that were actually done, we believe, um, in Los Angeles and brought up to be finished in Healdsburg. But uh, to any of our knowledge, he didn't work in oil when he was up there. So this first work is from 1991 and the second work is from 1992 and the third work from 91. Now, in my estimation, this is sort of the direction that he's moving to at the time that he died. Um, in a way, it's, a, it's looking back to the earlier period of the abstraction in Albuquerque and Urbana, and, and in a way, it's looking forward because it's more chaotic and more divided and more related to what he's produced during the Ocean Park periods. So I feel that this is, this is a precursor to something which we will never know what it is. And then finally, in Healdsburg, this is a paint, a drawing, work on paper, that he did, which um, was hanging in his studio because my mother wouldn't allow it in the house. Uh, many um, artists, when they're contemplating their own death, um, paint skulls. And um, she thought it was bad luck to have it in the house, so she didn't, but then it was one that when he died that I chose because he and I had had a long conversation about it and what it meant and why it remained in the studio. Some of my favorite memories of my father have to do with the way that he taught me to see. I am unable to look at certain places or certain things without thinking of him. There used to be a marvelous peeling brick building in Berkeley that he loved seeing. You were aware of the bricks underneath and the lavender color that it was painted. It was. Um, owned by some East Indians and it had a slight, that kind of wonderful color that, that you see in India. And in some places, the effect of the undercolor on what was now the top. And every time we drove by, he would comment on that building. There is a place as you approach the Bay Bridge on the way to San Francisco where you can see the water. And he would comment on the color of the water that day as opposed to another, and I can't possibly drive across that bridge without noticing the color of the water. And it's different every single day. And it's just fascinating how extremely different it is from day to day. He taught me to see the variation of color within something that we would describe as yellow or blue. And that reflection, shadow, worn places, dirt, etc., can affect the color we see if we look more completely and carefully. 
Though we think of a rat, rattan chair as model tan, we still recognize it when its colors are pushed or altered into a different part of the spectrum. He was very taken with useful objects, and by that I mean a really made pair of pliers, Scissors, kitchen implements, or old well-worn tools. And two of these are in the exhibition. This one belonging to Nancy Boas, and this one belonging to my husband and to me. He um, appreciated form as it related to function in a very particular way that interests me very much. And all of his tools had men's on them and scars from various uh, jobs that he did. and. Uh, uh, he just appreciated something that really worked well and was beautifully made. Our life was uh, organized around his life, and it always was. When we first moved to Berkeley, we lived in a flat where the central room, the dining room, was his studio. Now, he was not to be disturbed. Later, when we moved to a bigger house in Berkeley, his studio, which he built himself, was in the backyard at least part of the time we lived there. I only remember knocking on that door once, some emergency. I wasn't afraid, it's just that it wasn't done. My father had his studio in the house a number of times during my childhood. I wasn't often in the studio, but I have a vivid early memory of the Sausalito studio, which was in the attic of our house. After I had to be taken out of the Wizard of Oz movie at a point when the house landed on the witch, you know, the striped stockings are sticking out, my mother took me home and we went to the studio. The floor was caked with paint. It looked like a Jackson Pollock painting. And there was the smell of paint and turpentine that I associate with my father to this day. He was working. But he stopped and he spent some time explaining to me the difference between fantasy and reality. Then the next day, he and I returned to the movie and I was able to make it to the end of the picture with great anxiety on my part. He was comfortable going in and out of fantasy. It was important to him that I should understand that concept. Now speaking of fantasy, here is what we affectionately call the robo-bird that he did for my son in the 70s. As a grandfather, he shared much of his fantastic sense of humor and delight in images with my children. He carved pumpkins and made Easter eggs, drew with them, and generally shared his work with them as well as with the rest of us. This next picture is uh, the dragon, and the dragon was also done for my son. Now, you can see that this picture has two signatures on it. There's RD on the left and RG on the right, RG standing for my husband, Richard Grant. Now, the reason is that my father drew the dragon, and he did a couple of scales, and then he turned it over to Dick, and he said, well, now you can just do the rest of the scales. <laughs> and so he gave Dick a credit on the picture. The next one is, belongs to my son as well. This is the running dog, and this is made out of, it's huge, by the way. It fills up his entire dining room wall. Um, it's as big as it is up here, I think. And it's uh, made of tar paper and construction tape. Then uh, this next group of pictures, this was for my daughter. She, my husband and I made her a dollhouse, and my father decided that no house would be complete without its paintings. 
So he made her this series of Ocean Park paintings, um, and they're all labeled. These are the backs of the ones that are above them. And you'll see that this one here <clears throat> says Aegon Sheila and RD 75, because he started with a little Aegon Sheila drawing from a, a postcard or something, and then he worked on it himself and changed it around a bit. So um, these are all minute. They're the size of a matchbook. They're about two by one, something like that. And uh, they're lovely, I think. And he presented them to her in, in a cigar box that he had decorated, so, which we still have. He didn't like to shop, so when a birthday or a Christmas came along, he and my mother would determine what they were going to give, and he would make a card and accompany it with a check. So when I was pregnant with uh, our first child, we wanted to have a rocking chair, and so this was our Christmas present that year, um, uh, which we then did, went out and got a Bentwood rocking chair. The next one, this was for my son when he outgrew his bed. He grew very fast, and he suddenly needed a new bed. And uh, so this was the card for him. And then one year, my husband and I, um, went away for uh, a few days to New York City. And we didn't have much money at the time, so our Christmas present was this card and a check and uh, to go to Bonnier's, and we thought it was Bonnier's for drinks. We didn't know Bonnier's was a place to buy glassware. But we, so we kept looking for a bar called Bonnier's. <laughs> Um, and then Le Vaudor for dinner, which in those days was a really marvelous French restaurant that the family likes a lot, and the Whitney for eyes, and other delights. Finally, this last card, my mother, um, when she was working, needed uh, some new clothes. She needed a new suit, and so my father, this is made out of wood, and it has a real hanger on it, and this was the present, which was good for two suits. And then he took her to get her two suits. When I was little, what his profession actually was confused me. He referred to himself as a painter. But in my really early years, he also painted houses occasionally. Additionally, he taught painting. So the fathers of my friends had quite conventional jobs and they didn't have paint under their fingernails all the time. They worked normal hours and they did recreational things on the weekend. Now explaining this father of mine who was definitely not easily categorized was tough, especially when friends came to our house and took a look around. Now this is a photograph of our dining room in Berkeley. Now you can see that tool up there was one of the ones that he collected um, over the years. Um, and it doesn't look like any other house in Berkeley at that time, I can assure you. Um, and then the next picture, well, I, we can wait for that one. Um, the way our various houses looked inside was, was different from any of the houses of my friends. The furniture wasn't conventional. This is in the living room on the mantel. Uh, much of it was designed and made by my father or found by him in junk stores. He, was, he particularly liked old wooden desk chairs. My parents and I now resist curtains and drapes possibly because of what one misses when the exterior view is obscured 
and certainly also because of the resulting loss of light. Um, just a quick comment about that. I, my father always was interested in the difference between inside and outside. Um, somehow this was very important to him and he didn't like uh, views obscured and uh, or uh, that's a little bit wrong because he actually preferred windows that were um, what do you call what's that word if not, not fascinated a faceted but panes sorry that with small panes in them rather than one big window he liked looking through something to to get to the outside he liked that obstruction um, the couch in our living room and i don't mean sofa it was really just a bed was covered in an indian bedspread and usually had our dog valentine sleeping on it and there's Val valentine right there and he was always there whether people were on it or not now, our dishes didn't match, God forbid, but remember this was the 50s, I'm mostly remembering here, in an era where everything, it seemed to me, was supposed to be matched. Sweater sets, purses and shoes, dishes, silverware, linens, furniture, cups and saucers, nothing matched anything else in our house. Believe me, it was wonderful, but its differentness was confusing to me. My father changed what was hanging on the walls very often. New works were constantly moving in and out of the house. He would hang one, look at it for a few days or weeks, and then another picture took its place. There were drawings and objects on every available ledge and piles of framed, and, uh, framed drawings and paintings leaning against walls. And then we get to what was on the walls. In my early years, they were hung with abstract works, and of course my friends would ask why we had things like that on the walls. They would inevitably point out that they could make something like that that was just as good or better. Now we were admonished not to find objective things in pictures. This began to get complicated in the Berkeley period as he began exploring figuration. But first, let's look at this other, uh, one of my favorite abstract drawings that uh, would have confused my friends a lot. Um, so this, uh, we were admonished not to find objective things in the paintings. And then one morning, uh, I didn't know how to react to this painting, which appeared hanging opposite me at breakfast. Now, how would I talk about it? It clearly was a horse and the horse clearly had a rider. I was utterly confounded. I had nothing to say because I was told I shouldn't find things like horses and people in the pictures. Also during this time, there were lots of drawings of nude women and occasionally men as well. And of course, these drawings mostly resulted in averted eyes or in some cases, covert glances but only in very rare instances any appreciation or understanding by my friends. My mother told me that I went through a very long little white house side of the road phase during which I longed to live in an ordinary house furnished with matching everything that was a simple variation on the house next door and the one next door to that. But in our house, everything had a visual significance. 
This next picture um, is a beer label. Um, my father um, and mother in Albuquerque made their own beer. And what we would do is we would go out in the car and drive along the roads and pick up all the tossed beer bottles on the side of the road, bring them home and sterilize them. And they had some kind of um, label, I'm not label, but um, thing to, to put a top on it. And then, of course, it would suddenly get ready. And then when my grandmother, who came once and was a teetotaler, she was enlisted in helping to put the beer in the bottles. And this was the, the label for that. And then this is uh, a picture of uh, a meal. You can see the uh, lamb chop bone, one of my father's favorite dinners, uh, and the tablecloth that my mother used, which was a, an Indian bedspread. Every uh, Wednesday night for years, he and Frank Lobdell Elmer Bischoff, and early on, before he died tragically young, David Park, hired a model, or sometimes two, and drew until all hours of the night. One of the most interesting drawing exhibits that uh, I remember seeing showed some of the drawings from these artists that had been grouped according to particular nights and poses. It was a bit like hearing the same story from three different observers from slightly different angles. It, was, it had a Rashomon effect. Except for these drawing nights, this is his studio in uh, Healdsburg toward the end of his life. Uh, except for those drawing nights, uh, he always worked alone in the studio. When late in his life I worked for him as his secretary, he often received lovely letters, usually with impressive resumes attached asking if the sender could be a studio assistant. I was instructed to write and say that he worked alone and that the only presence he would allow when working was his dog, Amy, who you can see right there, loyal Amy, sat there all day, <laughs> just watched him paint. His studios all uh, shared certain characteristics. Now this is the Berkeley studio that he built himself. There was the aforementioned smell. There was, whenever possible, diffuse north light, which you're seeing, whoops, keep hitting the wrong button. Seeing here, this is the north. Um, there were lots of art books lying about and tools and of course all sorts of paint and materials on tables and on the floor that were in an order only to, known only to him. In the figurative years, there would be Indian bedspreads. You can see that back there for the models, to be used for the models, and until late in his life, a large and very full ashtray. This is, uh, again, this is the Healdsburg studio, and you can see all the things on the floor. He kept little pieces of paper. He reused paper all the time, so he would just put it on the floor, and then he'd pick it up weeks later. Um, there would be things tacked up on the wall, some of which had to do with what he was working on and others that were there simply because they interested him in some way. Someone asked me the other day how the um, shows came about and what he would do when the dealer came out once a year was uh, he would have the drawings tacked up like this that he felt were part of a group 
in some way and then they would choose the show and then there would be these outliers that were left behind and because he didn't feel that they went with the group and as a result um, several of the pictures that I have are sort of art outliers because those were the ones that weren't sold so uh, the chair where he sat when he was thinking and looking was consistent in later years from studio to studio a black naugahyde armchair for which he had built a height extender here because it was too low to the ground. There was also a black folding chair, which appears in many of the paintings, an old wooden desk chair, which is right there, and then this large rattan chair that also is in a lot of the paintings and drawings. If you remember back a ways, I was talking about uh, the rattan chair with the color being pushed well, that's that chair, and that was uh, 30 years before this picture, this photograph. For a palette, he used paper plates. There was lots of stuff on the floor, cut out op uh, paper and objects, as you saw, and many dust curls. The studio was never cleaned in any conventional sense. It didn't feel dirty, it just felt like his. Now these, these pictures are paintings that he did of his various studios. Now this first one is a Berkeley studio, not the one he built, but it was one uh, in front of the Triangle Bar in downtown, which has been torn down to make way for our transit system. But um, we know it's that one because of the checked floor. And there's the, a very full ashtray <laughs> up there on that table. Um, and then the next picture, that's studio wall. On the left, you can see the uh, folding, black folding chair, which we saw 50 years, almost 50 years later in the other studio. And this was the sink at that studio. And then, now this is the Ocean Park, second Ocean Park studio. The Ocean Park studio, um, he, again, he built a studio in Ocean Park, but this, the, this was the one before he built his. And it had windows, industrial windows, that flipped open. And that is a, a drawing, a gouache he did, that is looking out to what the view was out the window. And you can see that that window flips up like that. And then you look at one of the early Ocean Park pictures here, and you see that there's, there's a connection to me. That, that somehow that kind of started him on this new group of pictures, which included a lot of originally indoor-outdoor feel and a very strong sense of windows. I do remember seeing him work in his studio a few times, mostly when I was quite young. He was very physically involved with the paint and the canvas. There would be a lot of uh, contemplation, contemplation, excuse me, a lot of contemplation, and then an aggressive and active involvement with the work. His hands were strong, and when he painted, he used their strength somehow to express his ideas. He often drew at home, and I recall the same visceral connection to the paper which was usually attached to a board that he would have in his lap. 
Sometimes he was so physically involved that he would actually go through the paper. Then often an elaborate patch would result. If, as he was drawing, the proportions of the paper didn't seem right anymore, he would glue on extensions. Often it seemed the process of the patch or the extension was as important as the drawing itself. So in the exhibition downstairs, for example, there are a lot of pictures that have, of the works on paper that have glued parts. But in addition, uh, the two horizontal Ocean Park works that on paper that are in that final room, that are, they're very horizontal. They're you know, wide like this and just about that tall. If you look at that, that's many pieces of glued paper to change the shape of the paper because he wasn't satisfied with the drawing on the size that he had originally. Sometimes he used a mirror when he worked because seeing a mirror image often helped him figure out wasn't, what wasn't working. Now, when I say that, I really mean a, a hand mirror that he used a lot, but also you can see this is my father who was sitting over here somewhere, um, being reflected in a mirror in the studio. And um, the reason I know it is my father is because it's a person drawing with the left hand, and my father was right-handed. So this is a mirror reflection of a right-handed person drawing that way. Also, I just know it's him. It just looks like him. But <laughs> that was my proof for, <laughs> for myself. Um, so in order to see a work from different angles, he would work on it upside down or sideways. And later, he might decide that he liked an abstract work better that way. And thus, the multiple, multiple pinholes in the corners of many of the drawings. He liked things that had a past, which showed a previous form or scar. He didn't erase much, but left pentimenti for contemplation. And he couldn't always explain this, but this particular picture is Soda Rock number one. They lived on Soda Rock. That was their street address. And he would go on a walk every morning, and he would pick up um, orange juice tops, gum wrappers, you know, whatever he found along the road. And then he came home and put this picture together. And. Um, People used to send him exotic or homemade paper, which he rarely used. He wasn't interested in fancy paper. He liked classic drawing paper, newsprint early on, which was available at any uh, art supply store. <clears throat> and he liked paper with a past. Um, he, these, <laughs> my great uncle worked for Pennzoil and he uh, had uh, all these stacks of, of uh, Pennzoil after the end of the war, and he just gave them to my father because they were plain on the back, and they were lovely weight. And also, the, we don't know where he got this stack of mother's economy size cookies, but um, he had many, many of those as well. So oftentimes, if you look at, at drawings all the way up to probably the move to Healdsburg, you see on the back that it either says Pennzoil or Mother's Cookies. Um, so he, he used scraps from discarded drawings of his own, um, advertisements, schedules. We find some of my math homework on some of the drawings. Anything that was lying around, he just would use. 
we did not waste paper in my family. Um, this next uh, picture is uh, an example of that. This is a poster from his Stanford drawing show in the 60s. Uh, it was a beautiful show of figure, figure works. And uh, these are three works on top of that poster that he did over the next couple of months. Um, this next picture is, was taken by the photographer Hans Namuth uh, of my father drawing my mother. And uh, he was comfortable with Namuth. We, we, there are only a few photographers where he looks like he really looked uh, because he didn't like being photographed, but he didn't mind Hans. And uh, then this next one is, uh, you can see the possible drawing that, that he did. We don't know what is the actual drawing, but certainly this was the same period. My mother was a terrific model. He would say, would you hold that position as she was in conversation with someone or reading or smoking or drinking a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, and she would just hold it in a lovely, lifelike way. And I'm still in awe. This is, this is a painting of my mother that's at the National Gallery in Washington. Um, I was not a good model. There aren't a lot of drawings of me. He said my qualities were expressed in movement, and I, <laughs> I became dead when posing, furthermore. I absolutely hated it, so we were both happy. Um, this next drawing, this is a drawing that um, was originally purchased by the pianist Eugene Stoman. And I've always thought that it was fascinating that a musician picked this drawing, especially a pianist. It reminds me of music, it reminds me of piano keys. It, it just seems so right for him to be, have been the original owner. All artists share certain issues concerning the creative process. Although he wasn't trained formally as a musician, my father was very knowledgeable about music. His understanding of musical repertoire was incredible. He and my husband shared many late nights listening to music and discussing what they were hearing. My father and I had conversations comparing my worries as an actress that I would never work again or that I didn't know how to begin work on a character to his equivalent, the blank new canvas particularly the first new canvas after a group of work was sent off for a show somewhere. An interruption had happened, not necessarily a bad thing, and it was time to start again. It was helpful to me to know that it wasn't easy for him, that he proceeded by using his will and his drive to paint. It may seem odd to say this, but I think he actually liked mistakes. Perfection wasn't high on his list of qualities to which one should aspire. He wrote a list of 10 notes to himself about beginning a painting that included three observations that have particular meaning for me. Do search, but in order to find other than what is searched for. Mistakes can't be erased, but they move you from your present position. And finally, uh, tolerate chaos which he said in a different way later, and I have up above my desk, and it says, 
chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. I have some general comments about the way that my father worked. Although he drew from models, the subjects of his paintings and some of his works on paper were primarily from memory. There are a few pieces that are actually called imaginary landscapes, but really near, nearly all his representational landscapes and interiors are from his mind, influenced greatly by his surroundings, to be sure, but often repurposed and rearranged. He almost never did preparatory drawings for a painting, but he often referred to or was informed by drawings or parts of drawings that he had previously made. Nor did he work from photographs, although in his things I have found newspaper or magazine photos that he had cut out because they interested him. Uh, there's one painting in particular that we found a, a black and white newspaper uh, thing that he'd cut out where the woman is leaning against her arm like this and that there's a painting of, of a woman in that exact position and I'm sure that it came from that, um, that cut out from the, magazine, the newspaper. Some part of the photo may appear in a gesture or a shape in the painting. In 1970, the US Department of the Interior took him on a plane flight to do some aerial photos that are clearly related to what he was working on in the studio. Now these are all owned by the uh, Department of the Interior. This is up in the plane and you can see here's a work that he was doing around the same time which clearly relates to what he saw up in that plane. And then there's another photograph that he took from up there. And then here are a bunch of drawings that I feel are strongly influenced by that experience that he had. He always had to sit at the window seat on the airplane. Um, all artists change things, and we know this because we have seen x-rays of paintings from the past that appear on the surface to be a single confident choice. But my father was interested in the evidence of the changes that a work went through as it evolved. I learned about his values as a painter over time. When I had my first lead uh, in a play, the director sent me a bouquet of roses, and I wanted them to last forever. So being the daughter of an artist, I asked him to paint them for me. He explained that he didn't paint what others wanted him to paint, only what he felt moved to paint and that he couldn't paint the roses. I was disappointed, but I understood completely because of the way he presented it. I was so surprised when I returned from school to find that he did paint the roses, a lovely color drawing that I especially adore. I suppose because I really did understand that he couldn't be obligated to do it, my roses became a possible subject after all. This next painting is uh, Flowers and Cigar Box from 1956. So there's one of his collection of cigar boxes. My father was fond of cigars. People knew this and they sent him boxes of cigars now and then. He decided to make use of the boxes. He always stored things in them and eventually in the mid to late 70s, he painted 13 small format Ocean Park paintings on cigar box lids. They were until recently never sold, only given to family and close friends. And there are, th this is a cigar box lid, this big. It looks as big as the other pictures, but it's not. 
And you'll see the, uh, there are three in this exhibition of the 13. For a man who appreciated the continuum and the interconnectedness of the history of art as highly as anyone I've ever met, my father valued his own autonomy very much. He didn't like labels. He resisted being a member of this movement or that movement. This very labeling, I think, sometimes seemed to cause him to explore some variant or new way of looking. Although it seemed that in some way the Bay Area became visually used up for him in the mid-60s, thus prompting the move to Los Angeles, I think also he may have perceived Los Angeles as having a, a broader variety of painting in those days that he would be one of many different individual painters rather than an abstract expressionist or a member of the Bay Area figurative school. He didn't think of himself as a California painter, but as a painter. He objected to being pigeonholed. He was a very opinionated man with a strong sense of right and wrong. He lived out his principles and expected others he loved to do the same. He was not very good at compromise. I mean that in the positive as well as the more obvious negative sense. He was a combination of judgmental and discerning that was very complex. One of my favorite things that he said was in response when one night at dinner I heatedly announced that is a matter of opinion, he calmly said, not really. We once had a conversation about the difference between nude and naked. I had chosen a drawing of a woman wearing nothing that is somehow uh, assaulting in its presence. He pointed out that it was because she was naked, not just nude. Nakedness implied a state of actively impressing on the viewer her lack of clothes, rather than simply appearing before us unclothed. There was a specificity to the way that he thought. The first time I saw one of the Ocean Park pictures was quite a shock. In 1968, <laughs> my husband and I were visiting my parents <laughs> in Los Angeles, and my father asked us if we would like to go to the studio while we were there. The last works we had seen had been representational. There was no sense from him that we would be seeing something utterly new. It was terrifying to me to be unable to comprehend what I was seeing. It was not only that the paintings were abstract, because we were familiar with his previous abstract works. I'm really referring to the mental, visual vocabulary necessary to understand something unexpected and indeed unimagined. He was so patient with us. He probably enjoyed our shock and our loss of words. Gradually, as we relaxed and looked and stopped trying to place this work in any category, we began to see and to understand and ultimately to appreciate it enormously. It was a very special day. <laughs> there were certain forms, shapes, and even themes that interested my father for his entire life. He was taken with the proportion of the golden section, which you see often in Greek architecture. The smaller is to the larger, as the larger is to the sum of the two. 
He was interested in some of the symbols that derived from heraldry, such as the Maltese cross or checkered quadrants or diagonal quadrants. And they began to fascinate him, I think, when as a boy he looked at the Wyeth illustrations of King Arthur. Now, here you can see a work with a great deal of all of the heraldry and the clubs and spades and so forth. And here we even see it, see that Maltese cross on the picture. He made very few three-dimensional objects, but uh, we do have that one. At about this time, uh, when, when he was younger, that is, when he was looking at the Wyeth, uh, his grandmother brought him uh, reproductions of the Bayeux tapestry. Now, other recurring shapes are related to cards, clubs, and spades, particularly, as I've said. And in the early 80s, he worked on a series of clubs and spades in the middle of his work on the more recognized Ocean Park paintings. So these are all in the early early 80s, the one on the f uh, far right here is, um, is an etching, actually, and the others are works on, original works on paper. And then this is an Easter egg that he made, that if you roll the egg, it is a club. So, I mean a spade, thank you, <laughs> um, that, that we still have. It's looking a little ragged these days, but we do still have it. <laughs> Um, a book that I remember him showing me was an examination of artists' work that referred back to the work of other artists. So this is themes and, and variations. In his own work, an early drawing of his marine jacket relates strongly to historical works of other artists. It also relates to some of his drawings of coats in the 60s and to his later etchings of coats ranging from realistic to abstract in the Aryan Press book of Yeats Poetry, published shortly before he died. Now there is, uh, again, at, just as, um, just as uh, skulls are a kind of a reminiscent of death, also coats without someone wearing them are the same. And so it makes sense that he would draw his Marine Corps jacket without anyone in it. Uh, and then these at the end of his, his life. And in the 60s, I was contemplating, now why in the 60s? We have three or four drawings of Coates. But he was very concerned about the war at that time and what was going on. And that's my only explanation for why there are several that appear during that time, because I think um, his health, his particular health, was all right, but he was worried. Um, my father basically painted 365 days of the year. He really was always working because he was always looking and deeply noticing, even when he seemed to be doing something else. Excuse me. <clears throat> Recreation. <clears throat> was basically uninteresting to him. So the ski trips and the trips to Hawaii that when many of my California friends experienced were not a part of my life. Of course, I was actually well-traveled because we drove across the country a couple of times. And my father took summer teaching jobs in Colorado and in Los Angeles when we rented someone's house <clears throat> and had a new life for brief periods. But he went to the studio daily, as usual. 
He and my mother took several trips to Europe to see paintings there, to visit friends, and once as State Department emissaries for the arts to the Soviet Union. But even on trips, he looked in his particular way and sketched, did some etchings, and sometimes painted. Um, now this is recollections of, um, recollections of a visit to Leningrad, and you can see the influence of some of the Matisse paintings that the museum there has, that they saw um, in the attic, pushed against the walls. They were not up during the Soviet Union's uh, lifetime. I have had a hard time with the tenses when talking about my father. I continue to find my father very present in my life. I think of my father's work as a series of intimate spaces to which the viewer is allowed to enter and to experience. There is a sense of order in even his most chaotic works that calms me and pleases me on a very basic level. When he died, someone, and I wish I could remember who, said that he had a sense that my father had entered into the place that is presented to us in the Ocean Park paintings and drawings. That is where I like to think of him, too. This last work is a drawing he gave to me on my 30th birthday, and I have been seeing it first thing every morning since he gave it to me. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. We, we do have some time for some questions. I was just going to open it up and actually I had one question. He was a very creative person, not only in his practice, but also in his life. And I wondered, did he surround himself by peers who were acting in the creative fields as well? Yes. Uh, he had a, a lot of artist friends, of course, and drew with those three men and some others often. He taught. He was interested in teaching. He taught a lot of his life. Um, although not full-time because he wanted studio time. It's hard to do both. Um, a lot of musician friends because he was so interested in, in music. He read a lot. He read a lot of poetry, a lot of, um, a lot of books. He was a slow reader, as I am, but he, he did read a lot and uh, went to the movies constantly, especially when they lived in L.A. because they had friends who had passes to all the Screen Actors Guild screenings. And so they, they went constantly. They saw everything. It was so embarrassing. We'd go down there, and we hadn't seen a thing. They'd seen everything. <laughs> so in that way, yes. I just had a question about um, your father's um, prints, because I've actually never seen his paintings until I went to this exhibition, and I've only ever seen his, his prints. Uh -huh. So I wondered how he fell into printmaking and ah. how he felt it was part of his practice and who he was printing with. Well, um, I think part of his early uh, years in Sausalito with uh, Bischoff and uh, Lobdell, they experimented. They did a couple of, of uh, books of prints that they sold a uh, long time before he suddenly got serious. And I don't really know how, exactly how it happened, but he met Catherine uh, Brown, who is the... Um, head of the Crown Point Press, which is now in San Francisco. But in those days, it was uh, in Richmond, California. And she did all the printing herself. And he would take plates home sometimes and work on them at home, or he would do them there. Um, and that's the original uh, 
output. And he and Catherine has um, an enormous respect for the way artists work. I've visited her premises when he's been there working, and I visited it when other people have been there working, and you would think it was an entirely different place. The, the, the food is different. The, they, the, everything is coordinated with what that artist wants. The music is different. I went once when John Cage was there. It was fascinating. It was a totally different place, and they all ate macrobiotically for the entire time he was there all the, the people. But he, he had a wonderful relationship with Catherine Brown. And he did do some other prints in the LA area. He did some lithographs with Gemini, quite a few. He was very fond of the Gemini people. All the lithography was um, something that for some reason was um, not quite as pleasurable as etching, and I'm not really sure why that was true, even though he liked those people very much, and he came up with quite a few lovely uh, uh, lithographs. And he also did some at Tamarind when he was down in, in Los Angeles. Um, and the uh, etchings in the uh, Yates book, they were published by Crown Point Press before they were put in the book, although they are actual etchings. So he, it was just all part of his, peer, uh, his work. Um, it, it was just as important as drawing in terms of the steps of his process. And um, we're, we're finished now with the catalog resume of his work, which is just being, going to be published next year. And now we need to start on the, uh, the prints. So um, we have a couple of books that people have done in the past, but there will be a catalog resume of the prints at some point. I'm not sure when. Since the catalog resume took us 21 years, I don't know if I'll be around to see it, but we'll see. <laughs> Did your father show any interest in British art? Oh. Any, any particular artist? Oh, uh, well, he, show, uh, he showed interest in everybody. He, he came here, he went to all of your museums. He was here one trip during the, um, the oil crisis, and, and every museum had only one room lit. He said it was the most frustrating thing. They'd go in, they'd get to see one room, and they'd go back to the hotel, it was freezing, there was no, no heat. And then the next day they'd go and they'd have lights on in a diff different one. So he was very familiar with, uh, with the paintings here and the people here. And he knew David Hockney, of course, in Los Angeles when he was living there for a while. Um, and I would say uh, he was just interested in all, all painting. And of course, he had his favorites. Um, but uh, uh, every time he traveled, his trips were arranged around what pictures he could see. I was very interested in the cigar box lid paintings. Was he aware of the Australian Impressionist cigar box lid exhibition? No, I don't think so. Okay. No. I, I wondered if that had influenced him. They had a major exhibition in the early days of the Australian Impressionist, and they did it all on cigar boxes. Oh, how interesting. No, I don't. You know, I never know, though, because he read everything. You know, mm -hmm. he took every art magazine, and it may very well have been true that he heard about them. But it seemed to, as an outsider, a, a person who's not a painter, they seemed to sprout from, um, you know, from life. But you know, everything in his work came from somewhere. Uh, he looked at painting all the time of every period and every place, and uh, he could very well have known that's interesting. I'm gonna have to look them up now. 
<laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.